What happened, Herman? I lost it, I don't know. <laughs> okay, I'm an addict, I'm Bill. You gotta do me a favor and hug your neighbor while I pray. Like I said, I'm an addict and I'm Bill. What's that do? Bunch of you were at the EFSC, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So y'all got your vision yet? Huh? You know what we were talking about Sunday morning? Because, you know, I, I think about stuff. And uh, the most exciting European Fellowship Service Conference I've been at yet. It's the most, the workshops the most attended. We had very few that were outside of the workshop. That excites me. That shows the growth. That shows the maturity. And uh, a lot of solutions were provided. I am action solution oriented in my recovery. And, uh, you know, I'm here to talk about recovery. Everyone knows how to use, right? I'm being honest with you. You know how to use? Yeah. So I don't have to talk about that, right? Because I really don't like talking about my using days. I like to talk about the solution, how we find Narcotics Anonymous, how we progress in Narcotics Anonymous, and how we find recovery. Because that's the important stuff. You know, at, uh, my clean date's November 16th of 1979. I've not used since. And I think that's important uh, that I found a solution to my life. You know, it, uh, it's, it's to me, I never know what I'm going to say, how I'm going to start off. It's that I, I know I'm going to start off with having everyone give each another a hug, and you are neighbors to one another. I look at it as a family. We're in a neighborhood here. And our family is here with us. You know, and, uh, the hug is so important. To hug one another, to embrace one another, and to pass the message on that we, we have now been, been bonded together by the Fellowship Narcotics Anonymous is the most important thing 
I think a group can do when a brand new person walks in. That you, this is the vehicle that we have been provided to carry the message. You know, and, and how, how much more could we ask for? To, to feel welcomed. To feel like we're home. You know, and, uh, it's just an amazing thing. He said he found me. I, I don't know if did I wash up on the beach or <laughs> in the harbor or did uh, <laughs> did uh, my friend there find me in his tugboat? <laughs> you know, I got to go on a tugboat ride today. Got to go around the harbor. Maybe that's how you found me, okay? <laughs> but it excites me. But I'm happy to be found. You know, because I'm where I belong. In this room, at this moment of time, with my friends. That's the exciting part. You know, that we're together. And we're here for a purpose, and that's to carry the message of hope and promise of freedom from active addiction. We no longer have to suffer. You know, the horrors of addiction is tough on every one of us. I was sharing with some people this weekend about the hardest thing I ever did in recovery is go look at the bodies of dead people that I know I can no longer help, that we lost because of this disease. My first year clean, you know, I had to go to a funeral of a 16-year-old kid that blew his brains out right after a meeting. He didn't follow the direction when fast told him, turn the phone off or put it on silent. But, uh, you know, that week was my roughest week of my recovery. That week I didn't know how to not react. That week, you know, it talks about in the book that we can be prayed over, we can be all these things done to us, and if we don't want to get clean, we don't get clean. That week I acted out violently seven, well, uh, seven times on four people. This kid wanted to kill himself in front of me by eating a, a bottle of pills. I beat the living hell out of him, got rid of the pills. Two days later, he's doing the same thing, trying it again in front of me. I beat the living hell out of him again. The next I heard was from his parents and a couple days later that they found Charlie blew his brains out, 16 years old. I couldn't do anything for him. Had two other addicts that week try to kill themselves in front of me. I did the same thing to them. I didn't keep them clean. They didn't want this program. They were looking for an escape for eternity. They, they didn't have, there was no hope to help them after that week because they were all dead. Then the, the fourth one walked out of the bar that I talk about where I ended my, where I was going to end my life, where I was going to die. I walked out of that same bar room a year later and, and how many days, because that was on November 8th of 79 when I planned my death. I planned how to die, and I planned how to die properly and, and go into infancy and not a suicide. But I know what it feels like 
that want to die, plan my death, and God intervened in my life. I was going to commit mass murder. I was going to go in that bar, which was a den of inequity. Anything was in there, prostitution, uh, gambling, the, the bathroom wall, and anyone that ever shot heroin knows what it's like when, when they shoot heroin. The bathroom walls are full of blood. You know, someone just brought up and asked me about what the heck is a cotton shot? Well, old heroin addicts could tell you what a cotton shot is, okay? All right? Old junkies could tell you that. There's words like junkie and stuff like that in our gray book. Because that's what I never want to become with a junkie. My perception of a junkie was a heroin addict. Living on Skid Row, living out there robbing people. The lowest form of an addict in the world, in my mind. I didn't look at what I was doing as the same level. I was still putting a needle in my arm. I was just shooting a different chemical. You know, and I was living a life of hopelessness and degradation, the inability to survive on a daily basis in life. And it took me to that point on November the 8th to plan my, my, my death, have it prepared, willingness to go do it. I made the decision. The only thing that stopped me was the God intervention, my God moment. The only thing that stopped me that night, the phone rang at 2 o'clock in the morning, and it was a woman that knew me, and she said she read my name in the paper. I wasn't thinking about three months earlier when I was hopeless, and I ended up in a prison cell because I beat the living hell out of a police officer and another way in the, in the pool of blood. I wasn't thinking about that. I'm thinking about she has deja vu, and she's reading the paper in the morning. And I was going to die that night, and I made the decision. When I make a decision, I follow through. I'm one of them people that when I make a decision, I'm following through. There was no turning back except that phone call. And she asked me for five minutes of my time. I said, I can give you that. That's no problem, man. I owe you that at least. And I went to see her. And it turned into this day. God's intervened in my life and brought me to Narcotics Anonymous. And I've stayed ever since. I remember my last shot in my arm, my last drink, my last smoke, my last popping of pills. I remember the last chemicals entering into my system. I remember where I was at and what happened to me. And it took me to that point. God intervened and brought me back. He, there was another purpose for me in my life. You know, and, and when a miracle happens, and you are that miracle, each one of you are in this room tonight. I don't care if you're coming back from relapse or you're coming the first time here. There's hope. There's hope for every one of us together. We got to work together to help each other. We got to reach out to the person inside of us we got to see the person that's melting into the wall and not allow them to be not seen. we got to care enough that we can feel the spirit of another human being. When I first got clean, I didn't have that ability. When I first got clean, there was no basic text. 
just reading the front of the basic text and about the literature conferences and stuff. And, you know, uh, that part of my life, uh, I had nobody to guide me through it. I was confused, but I knew if I went to the meetings, something was different. I had to stop looking at the differences in our program. I had to stop looking at, there ain't no fucking outlaw bikers here. Any, any of you been an outlaw biker? Right. So I had to stop looking at that difference. I talked about the difference, you know. It's real simple. I went to that big church in Germany, that monstrous church that they're working on the outside, trying to make the outside look pretty. You know what we try to do when we get here? We try to make our outsides look pretty while our innards are rotting. And I go inside the church, and I'm walking through the church. Everyone's going to the statues, and they're, like, taking pictures. And, and I'm looking at the walls. I'm looking at the deterioration of the walls. I'm picking every defect out of that church. And I'm thinking, I could, I, I, if they would hire me, I could repair that whole inside that church for about $20 million. Because I am a mason. I'm not talking about a Masonic mason. I'm a mason. But it's one of my trades is being a brick mason. Pointing stones, pointing, pointing brick. And I'm looking at this place. This place sees a master in there, an artist. I call it an artist. Needs an artist in there to redo the insides. Well, we need an artist inside us redoing our insides is what it comes down to. We are sick from the inside out. We get a disease so powerful, it tells us to rebel in the room to Narcotics Anonymous. It tells us not to listen. It tells us that we don't have the answers. I mean, they don't have the answers. We know how to, uh, we know everything, right? Huh? My young friend. We know everything. And who are you to tell me? And I know that because I came here with that attitude. I look for the defects of every one of you. The disease wants me out there. It doesn't want me in here. So what do I got to do to get out of here? I got to see you are all fake, right? That's what the disease does. It wants to find our differences. And we'll find them. We will find them. We'll talk our way back outside, and then we're going to walk down the street, and someone's going to bump into, hey, hey, let's go hang out tonight. Let's go do this. And, and all of a sudden, we're strolling with them. And, but we don't use that night. Got away with it. Next night comes around. We're feeling lonely again. Go to a meeting, but we're still feeling lonely. We found more defects. Might be take a couple times, but all of a sudden, we're using and then we end up back in that same vicious circle. Anyone been in prison here? What are the revolving doors like? Hmm? I talk about it. The guards kept my, my, my cell warm. They tell me, we'll see you when you come back. And I look at them like, are you nuts? We'll keep the bed warm. And, and I'd end up revolving right back to that cell. And they go behind me. And you'd hear the doors shut. You know the great thing when you do an H&I and you go in there? You can get up front and talk with people and let them know, I'm going home tonight. I've been here, but I can walk out tonight. I don't have to stay. 
This is no longer my home. The prison was my home. I knew how to act in there. I knew how to survive in there. Survival was about. One day I looked out. The, I was up on the third tier, and you could look out onto the street of the city I was in, and you see people walking up and down, and, and then some girls would come up and flash their breasts at you. And I realized we're monkeys. There's nothing we could do with that girl. She's out there in the street. We're in there. They can't get in, and we can't get out. They're a toying with us. And I realize that I'm a monkey. I'm being toyed with. Just like when you go to the, the zoo and they throw stuff in at the animals. Well, we were the animals. We're the animals, and we're living that way. Well, I'll call it living lower than whale sh a whale shit at the bottom of the ocean. You don't smell it down there, do you? But guess what? It still smells, regardless. And I look at my lifestyle of that repetitiveness back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The vicious circle. And if I don't get time when I get here to commit myself to recovery, I'm not going to make it. If I'm looking for something to fill my innards up so I can feel good, I'm not going to make it. The only thing going to fill that hole used to, be an old, used to be a woman in Pittsburgh named Dot Tally. She's dead. But she always talked about the God box. And quit trying to put stuff in the God box that don't fit. The only thing going to fit there is God. And she always talked about that. Then they had another woman named Doreen. And Doreen, she always read that story where she's out in the ocean and she's on a ship and she's holding on for dear life. A storm hits. And she's holding on for dear life. And, and what got her through was God. Faith. Commitment. She held on to the storm, went silent. And these people impacted me when they talked. I start listening to people that impacted my life and made me feel there was, there was some hope. The greater power in the second step is greater than all of us. The we of the step is greater than all of us. Jimmy Kinnon put we there for a reason. We admitted that we're powerless over addiction. Doesn't say over drugs, does it? We're not powerless over drugs unless we're out there using them. Then there's no stopping. The train doesn't stop till we hit a bottom. And hopefully we can hit a bottom without dying. We can't reach out to people that die either. <coughs> We lost them. So what can we do to change that is what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to. What can we do to change that whole possibility? How can we make sure there's enough addicts in a room like this every week, every night of the week? How can we reach out to that many addicts and fill, fill our rooms up so we can help each other and through helping one another, we can get more people and reach more people and stop the suffrage. In America, we lost 107,000 last year to fentanyl. Fentanyl. That's what they're cutting dope with. That's what they're cutting speed with. That's what they're cutting crack cocaine with. 
That's what they're cutting marijuana with today. Xanax. They're cutting it with fentanyl. Them people didn't intend to die. They want to get high. They didn't intend to die that, that time. They weren't looking to die. They were looking to get wasted. But they're dead. We can't reach them 107,000 that we lost last year. Can't reach them. They can't hit a bottom. They don't have the opportunity to hit a bottom for us to reach them and bring them home. I look at that. When I talk, when I think about it, I, I'm heart, I am heartbroken. I am totally broken when I think about that. They don't have the way to find their way here. I failed them the way I look at it. Why have I failed them? Because I could have did something more. My life is not my life anymore. I don't own my life. My life in 1979 was over. It was done. So I made a change. I owe the opportunity to help other people be able to find that same change and do that same reaching out and start a meeting. And start a meeting that follows this. I want to read this because it's important. Came out of a little white book. Jimmy Kinnon basically wrote a lot of the stuff in a little white book. And he is a nonprofit fellowship of society of men and women from whom drugs has become a major problem. We are recovering addicts. We're recovering here. That's important to know that. Recovering addicts who regularly who meet regularly to help each another stay clean. So we have a purpose here. It's to help each one of us stay clean today. It's our purpose. This is a program of complete abstinence from all drugs. It's not leaving any loophole there to go to your doctor and get medication so you can deal with your depression. Not doing that. We got a spiritual program how to help you with that. A lot of people don't read that. They don't. They, they, they hear it, they hear it, but they never digest it. They never get it into their system. You know, this is, there's only one requirement for membership, the desire to stop using. There's, we suggest you keep an open mind and give yourself a break. Our programs are a set of principles written so simply that we can follow them in our daily lives. The most important thing about them is that they work. Tells us they work here. Doesn't say that they partially work. Says they work. That's a message that's right in the book written. There are no strings attached to NA. We have no affiliation with any other organizations. We have no initiation fees or dues. No pledges assigned, no promise to make to anyone. People would think, okay, what's this little thing? Little box? You pass this around, right? But there's no saying you got to put in it. If your spirit moves you, fill it up. If it doesn't, when you're ready, we'll be here. All right? That's all that is. It's a box that someone can participate from the spirit if they have it and they want to give it. All right? That's all that is. So I don't want that getting confused 
with that we have dues. This, this doesn't tell you what to put in it. It tells you if your spirit moves you, put something in it. So that's what that's about. Uh, here, we're not connected with any politically, religious, or law enforcement groups. Anything politically that I wear every day of my life, I take off when I come to Narcotics Anonymous. I don't wear it in there. I don't wear that stuff. You know, if I, if I had a cross on me, a beat down here, it would not be shown. I don't want to scare someone out of the rooms. And then it talks about, uh, or under no surveillance at any time. That means the pro agent is not in this room. That means a cop is not allowed in here unless he's here for recovery, and he's not here to oversee us. That you feel free in this room, that you're not under surveillance. You have to have that. You have to feel that no one has surveillance on us here. That's important, folks. And then it goes on to say, anyone may join us regardless of age, race, sexual identity, creed, religion, or, or lack of religion. We're open for anyone. We don't judge people in these rooms by any of them things. If they're a woman, if they're a man, if, if whatever their sexual preferences, we're not here to judge them. Their religion, their lack of religion, we're not here to judge them. It's not our purpose. We are not interested in what or how much you used or who your connections were. This is what I talked about. I asked if everyone knew how to use here. Because it tells me here, okay, we're not interested in what or how much you use or who your connections were, what you have done in the past, how much or how little you, you, you have, but only in what you want to do about your problem and how we can help. That's our only purpose. What do you, what do you want to do about your problem? How can we help you? That's an amazement statement right there. I look at, when I look at this book, I start reading that stuff and I realize what I'm here for. First, I'm here to get clean. Second, I'm here to help others. And, and I'm not here to judge them. And then it goes on. We have learned from our group experience that those who keep coming to our meetings regularly stay clean. Regularly stay clean. That's a lot what it said in that chapter. So anyone thinking about starting a meeting, make sure it fits to that. Make sure your primary purpose is right. Make sure you're inclusive. That's what that's telling me, inclusive. I never started a, I never started a biker's meeting just for bikers so I could have my people around me. You know what would happen if I had my people that's around me? You know what's going to happen? I guarantee you... Sooner or later, we're all going out to use. Because we'll get into war stories. Bikers get into war stories. How tough they were. Well, what are they doing here if they're that tough? Hmm? We're not that tough. We just put an image to society. But get us together, it gets goofy. Always does, always will. So, we all know what Narcotics Anonymous is now, right? 
I like the part with men and women coming together for a purpose. And then I like the part where it talks about what we don't, we don't discriminate against any one of us. We're open to everyone. That's exciting to me. I'm so excited about Narcotics Anonymous. I'm so excited about And they gave me a way of life. They laid a 12-step plan out for me. Isn't that a miracle? That you have the opportunity to find recovery? I have the opportunity to find recovery here. I got the opportunity to become who I am because of that. I think about stuff like that every day. And I, I know where I'm headed. I don't know what, where I'm going to be when I grow up yet. I'm still looking for that plan. It's always changing. But there's always one thing that's consistent, and that's Narcotics Anonymous. I get these wild dreams, and sometimes I'm going to act on them. Sometimes I'm going to go out and become wealthy, and then I'm going to be done wealthy because I've done that in recovery. I used to go make 25000 on a weekend. You know what money does to me? Burns holes in my pocket. Somehow it finds a way out. I get obsessive even when it comes to eating. When I got money, I'm eating like a king. Me and my friend Grateful Dave one time, I, I got so much money, and we went, to the, we went to the meat market, and we told them we want that whole rack. We want you to pull the steaks out of it. We want to cut, cut two inches, all right, thick, about a pound and a half, two-pound steaks, almost a, a kill steak, okay? Somewhere that weight, somewhere 2.2 pounds. And, uh, and then we, we got the porterhouse, pulled, pulled all the, cut all the steaks, then we got another porterhouse, and we pulled the center out, and we pulled the freaking flamingons out, had them cut them two inches thick. Got the, I got the, the ribeyes. I pulled the whole rib rack out, made a hamburger with all the scraps of all them steaks. So we had, we had, must have had 100 pounds of hamburger meat then. And we'd eat steak for breakfast. We'd eat steak for lunch. We'd eat steak for dinner. And we'd eat steak for a midnight snack. And we did that for a month straight. <laughs> the only thing we ate was red meat. I was obsessive and compulsive. I had money. One time I had so much money, I'm coming back from Florida. We stopped at every fireworks store on the way back, and I ended up with $20,000 with the fireworks. Then I become obsessed with fireworks. That was in the early 90s. And then we're blowing everything up. <laughs> You know, putting ourselves at risk of the cops getting us everything. We go down by the river and we blow, shoot them up over the city and the cops couldn't find us because, and I'm hanging, I'm hanging in the poison ivy one night. The cops are running all over the place and I'm hanging off a cliff. <laughs> they wanted to get a leave. They finally left about five in the morning and then I snuck out with my Jeep. And I'm like, you know, what am I doing? I was obsessive and compulsive. I just find other avenues. And when I have money, I can find a lot of other avenues. My wife was so scared because I had the rafters in the basement full of fireworks. And I was out in the middle of the park blowing shit up all the time. We almost, we, we did burn a tree down one night. We shot such big shit up, the whole willow tree went. You know, but the, the thing about it was, 
It didn't get me in no trouble. I was having a lot of fun. But the money was, the money would just come in and go out. Easy go, easy come. I mean, easy come, easy go, right? Never thinking about the future. Never thinking about what we had to get through in life. Wasn't planning. I didn't know how to plan back then. Oh, we said about 20 years clean, you realize something's goofy, right, when you're doing shit like that. Told you, clean time don't matter sometimes, right? Didn't matter. I was having a lot of fun. See, I never had a childhood, so now I'm in my childhood. They say you, 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 uh, you uh, when you start using, you stop growing. I start using at five years old, so I was a five-year-old when I got here. Just in an adult body at 26, I was a five-year-old. I was a child. I did not mature. When you use, you don't mature. When you use, you stifle yourself. And I stifled myself from growth. I didn't start using because I wanted to use. I started using because my father forced me to drink with him all night when I was a little kid. So I learned to be like him. The pain of addiction goes deep in my family. The pain of addiction goes deep, and it started at five years old for me. And by the time I was 26, I wanted to die. I didn't want to be here anymore. There was no hope. I found hope here. First thing we got to do is have the willingness to do what it takes. The willingness to have an open mind. To have an open mind and, to, and learn how to quiet our minds. To listen. And then we got to hear what's being said. We got to be willing to walk this path with other individuals. Like I asked a young woman this weekend. I got no problem talking to someone right to their face. Last year, I looked at a, at a young girl, and she was hiding in the wall. This year, she was vibrant at the conference. I saw so much growth in one year's time in that person. Gave me a lot of hope. Gave me a lot of hope. I saw her, I felt her, and knew she was suffering. She left there, she got... She has a sponsor today that's helping her. She got herself out of, out of the safe house and got herself moved back home and involved with a home group. That excites me. That's how much energy I got from that conference this year, seeing her return. And then seeing my friend from three years ago left the conference from England and he ended up having cancer. Basically, they weren't treating them at first. And they finally told them why it's too expensive to treat you. They finally treated him. And they almost killed him. He stroked. He stroked out. He almost died. But he was, he was alive. He's here. He showed up at the conference with, with his friend Matt. And I spent time with him on the couch all night on Saturday night. He stayed up with me all night long and we're chuckling, we're laughing. Other, other guys, we had a meeting and people start breaking down and crying and we start hugging one another. And everyone that cried, someone hugged, everyone in the room hugged that person. They didn't make a man feel that he wasn't 
a man because he's crying. They made him feel that he's home because we all know them tears. We all know that suffrage. And we all know that that person got to talk about it. And we hugged each one of them. That night, four men cried. All four of them were hugged by every other man and woman that was in that room. They felt at home. That's a miracle. I'm so excited because of that. I'm so excited because I see the, the growth from last year to this year with, these, with the people. You know, when I see these pictures being sent and posted on this one site we go on, and I see these PI posters going up, I see new bike, PI bikes being built. It excites me. It excites me that people are doing these things to get our message out there. It excites me that we're talking about setting up an area in the Netherlands, a pure N.A., with all, without the politics involved with it, without the money being involved. And the groups will take the responsibility of taking care of the financial matters from the groups, not having money sit at another level. But it's the group's responsibility and accountability that we talked about. I mean, I shared Saturday night about what each group did, what each group and how they had the same common themes in setting up an area. And, and I said, on Sunday, I expect to come back here next year, and I expect to see an area. I expect that. I told everyone what my expectation, that's in the vision. My vision is to see an area here. He's working together, each group growing and more addicts showing up and more meetings started, learning how to do outreach. Talk with the Germans for, before they left. They, uh, he said, I got to get a hold of you. I got to talk to you about outreach, how we can grow, how we can grow and get this message out there. It's our message, our message of total abstinence from any mood-changing substance, mind, or chemical. It's throughout the gray book if you read it. It's embedded in there, everywhere. I don't want addicts to not have the same opportunity I had. I don't want a partially abstinent program. I want an addict to be able to walk in the doors and realize they can have this and they don't have to go to a doctor and be used as a guinea pig again. I don't want outside issues Dictating 10A. This, this book here, this is a hardback, third edition rise with the original fourth of nine tradition that they called the baby blue. It's not baby blue, is it? Not this one. But the only reason it's that name is not that we gave it that, World Service Office gave it that name because the color was baby blue when we did it in 87. 89, they they started getting a, a little upset because we started putting them all over the place. By 90, 91, they were taking a man to court and suing him. My friend, Grateful Dave, who passed in 92 of an AIDS virus. Who, I embraced him. He lived with me. He told me he had AIDS and I said, what does it matter? 
What does it matter? I can't get it. We're not having sex. I'm not shooting your blood in my arm with a needle anymore. So what does it matter? You're welcome here at any time. We'll cook together, we'll eat together, and we'll live, live life together. You are my friend and my brother. And when he died, it broke my heart because he didn't have to die at that point. Why do I say that? If, if, the, if the office did not get that much vengeance and drag him to a court battle and make him fight the last year and a half of his life defending himself for something that the groups, the groups that we were involved with made the decision to print that book, but they needed an individual, so they chose him. He had no money. He was on welfare at that point of time because he couldn't work because he was sick. He needed, he needed some lifestyle at least. And they chose him because he could not hire attorneys to fight it. So he did the studying. He got the law books out and he studied it. I helped him prepare the case. And I sat with him through the whole case. I was there for him. Big Lou died in an airport with a needle in his arm trying to get clean again. He had to do one more shot so he could make it to my house so I could detox him. He asked me and called me up that same day asking me if I would detox him. He said, I might be high when I get to your house, but anything I got on me will throw away. And I'll make the commitment to staying clean. I told him, come. And in San Diego, he died. So I lost Big Lou. I lost Grateful Dave through the AIDS virus. I think about people like that because these are my friends. I think about all the people I met in Narcotics Anonymous that have helped me on the road. Joseph Proctor. Joseph was the most beautiful man you'd ever want to meet. Soft inside, loving, caring, compassionate. I met Joseph, I wanted to kill him. The guy rolled up on roller skates and he had bozo hair and he, and, he, and he comes up and he hugs me and rubs me down. I always liked this story because like he rubbed me down so well, it's better than any woman ever rubbed me down and I got scared. <laughs> he triggered something inside. I said, this fucker ain't going to bed with me. I'm not that way and he's not going there. And then I want to kill him because I, then he insulted me. The fucker, not only did he rub me down and scare the fuck out of me, then he insulted me and handed me a gray book. It's the only time I'll curse in the room, Narcotics Anonymous, because I'm going to say exactly what come out of his mouth. He handed me a gray book and a four-step inventory guide and told me to work the steps or die, motherfucker. Who is this guy doing this to me? See, right away, it's to me. Then I went outside and I talked to seven bikers. They were helping write the book, okay? And I said, I got to go kill this guy. And he said, well, you can do that. Or you can do exactly what he said and work the steps and die, motherfucker. I mean, what type of choice are you giving me? Well, you can go to jail today or you can find recovery. What do you want, Billy? Because they called me Billy back then. What do you want? And then I went home and I took the literature home. And the only newcomer told me, I think he should be your sponsor. Now I got to call the man up and ask him to sponsor me.
because I need a sponsor. The newcomer tells me that's the guy who has the guts to talk to you. So I called him up and asked him to sponsor me, and Joseph became my sponsor. What a miracle. That man never lied to me. He looked me in the face and told me how fucked up I am. He pulled my guts out, and he's a thousand miles away, and then he hugged me on the telephone, and then he put all the shit back in and stitched me up and make me whole again. That's the ability Joseph Proctor had in my life. I think about him. I think about my next sponsor, Greg Pierce. These are all dead men, so I'm not violating their amenity. They're dead. Nothing you can do about it. They're dead. They're going to the big meeting in the sky with Jimmy Kennan. They're watching over us right now. I believe that. I can feel their spirit with us. Greg took me through my sixth step and took me through the step 12 then with Greg. I did my first five with Joseph. Joseph, basically, I knew there was a problem. And he told me, he set me up to move on because he said, you're moving faster than me in the steps. I wasn't thinking he cleaned up the same year as I did. We both had the same clean, not the same clean date, but the same clean year. We both found Narcotics Anonymous. He found it through a library because Jimmy Cannon put a little white book in every library in North America, in every library in North America with on the back, his phone number was there for the World Service Office, which was in his house. So when you called the number up, this old man would answer the phone, Narcotics Anonymous, how can we help? And then you tell him where you're from, and he asks you how everything's going. You got a meeting, start it. If you don't, are you willing to start one? And once you just start it, right away, that's what he told them. Get it started. Find a facility now. And Joseph found a facility in Memphis, Tennessee. You think about that. Two years later, he's hosting a World Literature Committee for nine days, actually more than nine days, but nine days of the actual conference in Memphis, Tennessee. Then, he had, then they had to wait around for about another uh, over a week and a half to actually pack up the gray books and send them to every home group in the world. That, that, that was known. They sent from that conference. And then when you look at the history of it, World Service didn't give them any money to do that. Every, all the money came from groups, Membership that showed up at conferences, other members, and just like at the Second World Lit Conference, a bunch of bikers went and did an old attic trick. Remember when you, I don't know if you do, if any of you did it, but went and sold blood until you go get high? Well, they knew how to do that, so they, all the bikers went and they sold their blood so they'd have money for stamps and envelopes and stuff and, and type. Anyone ever have an old typewriter? Got the ribbons in them? Sit there like this here, pushing them. You know, and uh, but, but when we got clean, they had typewriters, okay? You know, we didn't have computers. They had typewriters. They didn't have touch screens, all right? That's why the gray book, the old gray book, not this one. This one, we got retypes that, okay, for us. Uh, but the old one had typeset, just like the basic text here. See, that's typeset, okay? Done from a typewriter to the print shop 
and then the print shop will put them on plates in the roll printer, the old roll printer to print them. That's all changed now. You don't need to do all that stuff. Now you can do it in the computer, make the layout, send it to the, the print shop. They'll tell you what the specs are, and they'll lay everything out, and they redo it to make it look right for you. And you get a nice, pretty book now. Back then, you got this. Typeset. So we needed typewriters. We needed uh, ribbons. So we had to buy ribbons. We didn't have money. We didn't have enough money at the conference, so people did things. And also people sent money in to help. That's an exciting thing that addicts wanted a book, and they were going to pay to have it written. Make the needs being taken care of. Everyone did their part in the groups of Narcotics Anonymous. When they asked, we received. Same thing we ask you today. If you ask, we need to help you. We need to help you find this recovery train. We need to help you to have inspiration to move on in the steps. It's all about the steps, folks. If I'm willing to do the work, someone's going to help me. And if you're willing to ask, we're going to help you. I always tell people, don't get caught up and tell the newcomer they better get a sponsor before they walk out the door. The group has a responsibility to sponsor that person so they can find a sponsor on their own. That fits them. You know, uh, our group's more concerned about our primary purpose of carrying the message than making the message available instead. That's what our group's purpose is. That's all our purpose is, is to carry the message to people like me and you. We're not here to judge them. We're here to help them. You ask, we're there. That's the key. We cannot help those who don't want it. We've got to help those that ask. We can't force it down their throats. Told you, I tried that. It didn't work. We cannot whip them. We cannot put holy water. There's not enough holy water in the world to put it on us. It won't help us anyway. At first, you'd have to believe that the holy water is going to do this for you. And we don't believe too well, so it doesn't work. I used to order that stuff online. Sit there in the middle of the night and put the holy water on me, and I wake up and want to, want to shoot up again. So what good did it do me? I just kept repeating the same mistake over and over again. Nothing could help me to I had the willingness. That's what we ask you when you come here. Willingness, open-mindedness. You have to be willing. You have to have your mind open. That's something that we always need to remember. Open-mindedness and willingness. It says willingness to try. I took the word try out. I say the willingness to do. I got to commit myself to this way of life. I've done that. I worked with my sponsors. I worked with, with Jimmy, Joseph, and Greg. They were my key in laying my foundation. You got to have willingness to lay a foundation. If you don't have willingness to, to, to lay a foundation and you're here for all the wrong reasons, you usually don't make it. That's the difference. If I'm here looking to get laid, I'll get laid, okay? All right. But what do I feel like? I don't feel good about myself doing them things. I feel like shit. So I'll come get laid again. I still feel like shit. Right? 
It's an inside job, folks. You cannot fill the God box up with outside substances. Sex is a substance to me. I need to look you in the eye and not look at your body. I need to see your spirit and not see your, 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 your physical being. Your physical being is going to get me in trouble. I need to understand that. I need not take advantage of that either. Okay? There's predators. I'm sorry, folks. I don't need to be one. I don't have to do that today. And if I see a predator in the rooms, I'm going to confront them. I'll be honest with you about me. I'll walk up and look you right in the eye and tell you, let's not do that shit. We're not here for that. We're here to give everyone the same opportunity I found here in Narcotics Anonymous. I'm here to call that out. I've been here long enough that I should not be a predator. I shouldn't be doing that shit in these rooms. I should give you the opportunity to recover first. I made a note with my wife. I'm not going to run around on her. I made a note with her duty, you know, that do part, and I, that's what, what's going to happen. I'm going to die with, with my wife. Well, I may not die with her, but if she dies first, guess what? I'm set free. I'm going to pray over her, and I'll let her know I'll see her in the next world. I'm going to keep doing what I do. I can trust her, and she can trust me. Because she knows that I'm not a predator. She knows that I'm safe where I'm at. I talk with her almost every morning to get her out of bed to go to work. She gets up at 5.30, so I got to call her at 11.30 here. I want to make sure she's safe and sound and at work where she needs to be. You know, and she calls me to check up on me to make sure I'm safe. Because she cares. We've been in a relationship for 40 years. I wasn't looking for a woman when she ended up in my life. I didn't ask her for her phone number. She gave me a phone number. Then I called her up and asked her if she wants to go eat. You want to go out for dinner? I didn't ask her for a date. I said I'd like to continue that conversation we had. And thought... Uh, she wanted to talk with me. So we set it up, went to a diner. And that turned into this day. I, I don't know how to date. I don't know how to ask someone out for one of these here, uh, what do you call them? Intimate dancing relationships. I don't dance. I can boogie. That's what we called it in the late 60s, early 70s. We're boogieing. We move with the music, Okay. We don't need a partner. We can move. We can get down with the beat, right? We know how to get down with the beat. I know that stuff. I don't do that no more. Well, I, I like something. That's, someone showed me on their phone. They were doing karaoke out in the campground. I'm looking, and there's that, there's that young girl that I met the year before singing karaoke, and I was so happy watching her. Excited me. She get in front of the, someone's recording her. She get in front of the camera, and she could be recorded, and we could watch her from inside the building. Instead of being outside, we could watch her from inside, sitting on the couch. That was enjoyable. You brought 
joy to my heart. Finding freedom is, is, is something beautiful. How long are we going to be here to find that freedom of recovery? How much are we willing to do uh, to seek that freedom? What time does the meeting go to Bass? Well, I don't know. Okay, because it's eight fifty-one. You want to be here all night? I could do a three-hour speech if you want me to. I've done them. Now I want to give you at least a little time to talk yourselves. Okay. So I'm, I. That's why I'm asking about the time. What time was the meeting supposed to go to? Yeah, maybe it was supposed to end uh, ten, ten minutes ago. Oh. Well, you want to leave some time for people to share? Okay, I'm going to thank you for allowing you to listen to me, and and uh, yeah, and I want Bass to come back up here and open it up to some of you can share. Okay, we can talk forever. I can talk about recovery endlessly. I mean, I love it. This is the greatest place to be right now. It's right in this room, and I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for the opportunity to come talk here and be part of your lives. So, Bass, back to the stage. <laughs> Thank you.